Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm the poor, sorry bastard that he dragged to Hellboy 2019, Jackson Eflin. Welcome to our Hellboy special. This is the first what-if of our comics bracket. We're going to be getting into a variety of Hellboys, all the Hellboy movies and some of the comics. Not enough of the comics. There's just not enough time. So we're going to start off with our initial feelings on Hellboy 2019, spoiler-free. So you can decide if you want to watch it or not. Then we will have a spoiler break, talk about spoilers for Hellboy 2019, and then afterwards we will get into the rest of the Hellboy oeuvre. And we'll include timestamps for where all those are in the description. So if you want to, say, skip over the movie and go straight to the Golden Army, fair enough. Or if you, maybe you've seen the first Hellboy but you don't want to listen to anything else, that's fair enough. So, without further ado, let's get into Hellboy 2019. Just came out in theaters... We saw it literally opening night. We're about maybe an hour after we're getting out of the theater, roughly. Yeah. Um, and we went in about at about seven and came out about five years later. <laughs> yeah. So as you can probably tell at this point, we are not too keen on Hellboy 2019. There's a variety of reasons for that, a lot of which are kind of spoilery. So we'll save those for after the break. But the film has lots of problems. And it's not quite bad enough to be good bad there are moments where it gets there but not quite i want to start off with this the actors are definitely not at fault no and i'm not even gonna blame necessarily blame the director here neil marshall neil marshall for the last 10 years or so has not typically taken on projects of this size he has directed a few films but they're much smaller budget-wise, and also most of his recent work has been in prestige television. He directed Game of Thrones episode Blackwater and a few other episodes. He's directed episodes for Black Sails, Westworld. And honestly, he's made a lot of things I love. I have a special place in my heart for Black Sails. Blackwater is my favorite episode of Game of Thrones. If you want to hear me talk about Dog Soldiers, you can do it in the link below, where I propose a sequel that also crosses over with his other much better film, The Descent. I can see what he was trying to do with a number of the set pieces. I don't necessarily agree with his take on tone, but I'm also not sure how much of that was necessarily him and how much of that was the screenplay. And who boy does the script stink. Admittedly, we're not sure how bad the script was to begin with because this movie was once about 28 minutes longer. For a very long period of time, the film was billed as 148 minutes. Then, near release, it was cut down to 120. They really wanted this to be an epic. Like, there's definitely a Game of thrones vibe to it. I can see that there. Mm. And I think at some point someone realized that it didn't need to be that and tried to save it. Saving something only to render it into a brain-dead coma isn't actually saving it. Yeah, the editing on this film is kind of a hack job. I've seen less cuts in a hair salon. <laughs> <laughs> They're just so bad, especially during some of the action scenes in the middle of the film where it's difficult to tell everyone's position just because of all the jump cuts. There's a bit that seems pretty obvious to me, like they had a whole long segment where they're on this quest to a mythic location to find a certain thing and they just made it into a character narrating and then just got there immediately. It has no time, and because it has no time, it means we go from what was kind of the third act climax right into the fifth act climax with almost no breathing time. And it really suffers in terms of characterization and pacing and drama. 
this film has pretty much no connective tissue. What connective tissue it does have are just vehicles moving around with hard rock in the background. And I don't know if the hard rock was there from the beginning or if they put that in to try to keep a momentum going or give a certain energy or tone or what, but it doesn't work. Especially since there are some times where it's there and the two scenes that it's supposed to be connecting are much more serious and somber and definitely don't need that music there. We start with a somber scene and then we get to this hard rock like, oh, there's going to be an action sequence coming up. And then we get into more mystery revelations or plot exposition and the film is pumping you up for absolutely no reason. I don't want to necessarily blame the director considering how much of the film was edited and it might have played much better. I don't think it would have completely saved it though. No, but I think this definitely had the potential to be a kind of middle-of-the-road okay movie, like the first Hellboy, honestly. Mm -hmm. To round out our general thoughts, the CGI is not good. No. There are a few scenes where it's very apparent that they've just got David Harbour in front of a green screen, and they shot a location and then tossed a bunch of mythological beasts in there for him to fight, and it just doesn't feel good at all. It wouldn't be so bad in the fight scenes, but there's at least one big pivotal moment that takes place with heavy CGI on it that you can't stop looking at that makes the already not very well done emotional impact scene not work at all. Mm -hmm. Like one last thing, the prosthetics and makeup that David Harbour has on for Hellboy are just too much. Like it looks like his face is squished under all of it and it's incredibly difficult for him to emote well. He's trying his best. I don't fault him at all for the movie being bad. Yeah, David Harper is doing his level best, and I respect that. I would I would say that for pretty much all of the actors in here. Daniel Day Kim is also really excellent as Ben Dymo. Uh, we've got Sasha Lane, who's having a lot of fun as this kind of punk-ish medium. Mm -hmm. And Ian McShane is a good character. I'm not sure how I feel about him as this character, but he's not bad per se. It's not his fault. I kind of want to get into Ian McShane and it makes sense for us to do that now. So let's go ahead and have the spoiler break here. Oh, damn. Gotta go. We all gotta go. It's an emergency, right? I think Ian McShane was a very bad casting choice for Professor Broom. Mm -hmm. For those who aren't in the know... Professor Broom is Hellboy's adopted dad. He was on the mission sent to kill the demon who was being summoned by some Nazis back in the 40s who turned out to be Hellboy and wound up adopting him because he saw the potential for this demon to do some good. Unfortunately, the depiction of Professor Broom here is unlike any that we've ever seen and it's so completely out of character that it just does not work for me. One of the first lines of dialogue is Professor Broom narrating about the Dark Ages and he drops the line, they were called the Dark Ages and for fucking good reason. My Professor Broom definitely does not say fuck. <laughs> Honestly, I think that's a really good indication of whether you're going to like this movie or not, is if you want to see that. And if you do, um, you're still probably not going to like this movie, but you might like it slightly more. That opening narration, I have this tiny hope that it might be kind of fun, because it's like the Dark Ages, and they're called that for a fucking good reason. And then later, it talks about, and her mortal enemy, King Arthur. Yes, that King Arthur. And I was like, you know, this could work. I could be here for this. This could be kind of fun. I could get on board with a sort of a wacky, irreverent take on this grand mythic journey. That could be fun. I mean, admittedly, the only other movie that I know that's tried that was Your Highness, and that was not good. But, oh yeah, this movie aspires to be Your Highness. 
all it would have taken to fix it is to have Ian McShane be literally any other character. I could totally see Ian McShane playing a Manning. Yeah, Ian McShane's character is a very toxic father, and while I think there's definitely some toxicity in the original Broomholm, it's a soft, subtle, almost imperceptible toxicity that you don't realize until you're kind of watching and analyzing deeply. Whereas here, it's super blatant. Like, at the end, his horrible CGI ectoplasm ghost is just like, come on, stop being a pussy and don't destroy the world. It's so bad. And that's not me summarizing, that's like what he says. Yeah, and the comics in the film have always had Professor Broom and Hellboy's relationship as very strong, and this film kind of dumps on that quite a bit. It In the comics, they've always been close, and here they are very much estranged, and Hellboy has a big chip on his shoulder from the way Professor Broom pushed him into being this investigator and being this violent person that he didn't sign up for. Now, there are shades of that in other depictions of Hellboy, but it's just, like Jackson said, so blatant here. The emotional payoff for this film is Professor Broom's ghost talking down Hellboy from joining with the evil Blood Queen and running the world. And dialogue-wise, it's pretty good. Both of the actors are on point. However, this is happening while Hellboy with flaming Excalibur, full-on horns, and the flaming crown above his head is talking to what I can only describe as a gooey intestine ghost. <laughs> it looks so bad, they do it twice. There is no reason that it couldn't just be Ian McShane as a kind of, like, transparent floaty man. If you even want to, like, make him gooey with ectoplasm, fine. But, like, that weird disfigured torso and the intestine thing that's leading down to Alice, who is channeling his spirit, is so gross. It looks like a villain in a cutscene from, like, one of the Resident Evil games or a Time Splitters game from the GameCube. It's already an unattractive thing to look at, and the CGI doesn't make it look, like beautifully unattractive in some way it doesn't save it there's a reason that force ghosts are kind of the go-to for this sort of thing it's easy to do when it doesn't look bad mm -hmm. and so i've been watching american gods as you do and ian mcshane is basically just playing the same character here as he is in american gods where he plays mr wednesday a kind of villainous version of odin even down to the whole like being shitty to your son to get him to fight your wars thing. Which is not a good take for Professor Broom. I was not in a way that they unpacked in any satisfactory way. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I get it. Ian McShane was not trying to like salvage this film on his own merits. He was like, you know what? I can do this paycheck and I'm going to do a good job because I'm a fucking professional. But he wasn't going to like create this whole new character when he already had Mr. Wednesday right there. Mm -hmm. <sighs> I think the next thing to talk about is... How Vivian Nimue is just two versions of her name from the myths. So this is like having your villain be named Bill William. Okay. Sorry, I know that doesn't really matter, but I don't want to break some tension with talking about how goddamn dumb that name was. Let's talk about the Arthurian stuff. We eventually find out that Hellboy is the last living descendant of King Arthur because Arthur's many times over great-granddaughter became a witch and had sex with the devil and that led to Hellboy. I believe that's canon to the comics. It's not not dumb, though. No. Yeah. But at least another part that bothers me. In this, we get some of the legions of hell walking around. They're these kind of... They remind me a lot of the Eldrazi from Match of the Gathering. I can see that. Yeah, like they're weird and spooky looking and they have kind of these horrific bodies. Some of them have like arms that are detached floating around with them. It looks kind of cool. 
It reminds me a lot of like devourers from D&D and how they're typically depicted. Mm, yeah. Or some of the antagonists from uh, Bloodborne. Yeah, like very from software-esque character design on some of those Hellspawn. Yeah. Which I'm fine with. That is a lovely design choice and it's pr- pleasantly creepy, but they're nothing like Hellboy. And if he's supposed to be in the same kind of vein, like he's supposed to be like their prince, they should be more like him, more in this kind of like tiefling devil classic archetype. And they're not it's a pity because i think if if you pick one or the other you made hellboy like a very different version from his comics where he looks more like something from a souls game or you made made legion of hell look like other hellboys or whatever either could have worked but here it feels disconnected and he's supposed to have his arc where these are his family but they're nothing like him there's no similarity there and yeah. doesn't work. Yeah, honestly, Hellboy has much more in common with a lot of the fake creatures that the Blood Queen has like amassed into her army. Ah, her army she doesn't need because she has a plague and the Hell Army. Yeah, the army that she amasses literally runs away when she gets shot, and then we never see them again. They're in the film for like that one shot. Also, she causes a massive plague that doesn't really matter to the plot. This film has two modes, exposition and fight scene, and that's it. Mm-hmm. The number of threats... As of the climax are Nimue herself, Nimue's plague, Nimue's army, the armies of hell, and Daniel Day Kim with a heaven gun. Previously worked around things, we have a changeling who has a grudge against Hellboy, who is like this giant warthog man. Mm-hmm. We have Baba Yaga. Oh yeah, I forgot about Baba Yaga. It's another movie. Yeah. Baba Yaga is what honestly starts the whole thing off. She tells the Warthog Man to, like, rescue Nimue. She can get him what he wants. Hellboy will later trade an eye for information about Nimue, but then punch Baba Yaga until he escapes, and she curses him, but the curse doesn't really do anything. Well, I mean, it does come true. He watches his father die. Oh, right. So, the curse is you will lose the thing you love the most, and I guess that's the best he's got? Yep. I (laughs) thought it was going to be Alice. Yeah. We also have, at the very beginning of the film, Hellboy is in Tijuana, Mexico, looking for a BPRD agent who they lost communication with three weeks ago, Ruiz. And he gets there, and he was investigating vampires, and sure enough, Ruiz is become one. Which means the vampires are still out there, theoretically being a threat, but it's never brought up. Yeah, the only reason we are there is because Ruiz, his dying words after Hellboy stakes him on a Lucha Libre pylon is, you know, the end is coming. Mm -hmm. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I am here for a luchador slowly turning into one of the vampires from Van Helsing. That's a cool plot, but it doesn't really matter. It does a decent job of establishing the world we're in. And this movie is not devoid of good things. One of the good things is it establishes a world full of supernatural. Oh, we also completely forgot the giants that were traipsing around England and the Osiris Society who were supposed to fight the giants, but also ended up betraying Hellboy because they didn't want him to end the world by, you know, getting Excalibur. And they're a sort of, like, distinguished old lodge of hunters who wear, like, ceremonial deer headdresses to fight giants. Think Freemasons plus, like, old-timey British Explorers Lodge, and that's a good encapsulation of the Osiris Society. And admittedly, that's from the comics, where it's kind of the same thing, but they get more time to be fleshed out. Another antagonism, though exist in this film there's so much to unpack is the general distaste for hellboy as a supernatural being by human society as a whole it doesn't really get gone into but a lot of different humans will express the idea that hellboy is bad because of his inherent nature and he needs to be gone 
which is a perfectly fine thing to explore. But also they're right. He had a destiny that he was going to bring about the end of the world. You can't have fantastic racism that is totally justified by the film's own mythology. You, you don't get to have both. Because it means that the fantasy racism was in fact justified and it makes the plot not work. And I think it would have been fine if there was no prophecy, if it was just Hellboy as a demon was hated by society. Yeah. If he was just he, like He's the son of the devil and he was summoned by Nazis. That's kind of enough you don't also need a prophecy that he will end the world you mm -hmm. can even have him keep the name like he who ends the world that's fine that's just a fucking name that his devil dad gave him yeah i'm pretty sure all devils have that name like you're not gonna meet like the devil named kevin it's you know, like ah the world ender the lord of plagues the frog bringer that kind of ties into another point this film retreads a lot of the same emotional beats of hellboy wanting society to accept him and struggling with that and struggling to figure out well these humans hate me do i want to even bother with them these are all the same things that hellboy 2 the golden army was tackling with its emotional beats and nimue's grudge is like she wants these monsters to rise out of the shadows just like nuada did so all the emotional stuff is the same and hellboy 2 does it so much better it makes very little sense to retread the same sort of emotional beats that the film you're trying to reboot did. It's only going to draw comparisons, and they are not going to be flattering, because it's Guillermo del Toro. Right. Guillermo del Toro gets monsters and monstrousness. Right, and unfortunately, the character who's trying to sort of tempt Hellboy out of the shadows, as it were, is also trying to cause an apocalypse, which doesn't work. And I mean, it's not untrue of Hellboy to the Golden Army, but that's less severe. It's more of a, I want to lead a campaign of war that is not going to obliterate everything uh, in the way that uh, Nimue is doing. And so you have this very mixed message of what she's offering Hellboy. Also, at the end, she winds up offering him dominion over the earth, but he never wanted to rule things. He never wanted to be in charge. He just wanted to be accepted by people. So what he's struggling with at the end doesn't fit what he's been struggling with the whole movie. So it doesn't matter. There's no emotional weight there. I do actually want to praise this film for one thing mm -hmm. compared to all other Hellboy media. It has quite a few more people of color in the cast than any of the other Hellboy movies. Yeah, it's got Sasha Lane and Daniel Day Kim as two of our main characters as a medium and, a, spoilers, a werecat. Very first BPRD agent that we meet is Ruiz, who is played by Mario De La Rosa. There's a decent number of incidental characters who are Black, Latinx, etc. Mm -hmm. One of the mediums that was there when Hellboy was summoned, I unfortunately cannot recall the character's name, is also a woman of color. Mm -hmm. And also, Alice and Ben, who are Lane and Kim respectively, are the British characters. And while... England is a place full of many different peoples. I understand if the media wants to present England as the white place, whereas everywhere else has more diversity, but they chose not to do that, and I appreciate that. Yeah. The UK is also struggling with that sense of the UK is white when that is distinctly not the case. There are many people of color in the UK. Some of the uh, reason that a lot of people voted to leave the EU. Yeah, it's really awful. It also kind of gets into this weird thing where several monstrous humans are people of color. So Daniel Day Kim is a werecat. These two black women are also mediums or have interactions with magical things of some kind. Mm -hmm. Then Hellboy, who's kind of our I'm the monster in society, is played by, as far as I know, Sisset Whiteman, David Harbour. And so while I appreciate the movie trying to tackle monstrousness, I'm not sure if it's doing a great job with it all. Yeah, I mean, originally Ben Dymo was not 
cast with Daniel Day Kim in mind. Ed Screen was cast for Ben Dymo, but there was some fan backlash because Ben Dymo in the comics is someone of Asian descent. And so he's like, I'm going to step down. And they eventually ended up casting Daniel Day Kim. Mm-hmm. And I respect that. I don't think at the time he was trying to get out of the horrible film either. I think he genuinely was like, no, this isn't cool. And I respect that because Ed Screen, he was the villain in Deadpool. But apart from that, he doesn't have a huge clout. And this could have been a biggest role for him. Honestly, there's also a lot of production troubles involved with this. The studio has been trying to get this film off of the ground since 2014. And then yet to succeed. <laughs> You know, they originally just wanted Guillermo del Toro on as a producer. It's like, no, I, I want to kind of finish my trilogy. And they're like, no, we want someone else to do it. And that led to him not becoming a producer. His money is not involved. Ron Perlman also dropped out because of it. And like, oh, okay, reboot then. Mm-hmm. Then we had the race-bending casting choice there was another thing. There was also the somewhat limited capacity that Mike uh, Mignola was given for the film he kind of just said if you're doing these stories here's what you don't want to do that was kind of the extent of his involvement and there's also been a lot of production delays and it seemed like the solution to all these problems was just to throw more money at it which is why we have all these cgi fight scenes that were probably very expensive and because there's so much of them they feel very flimsy i also really really hate it because one of the things that i love so much about the other hellboy films is how much they rely on practical effects right gurgach the sort of grendley figure is just like a big guy with a pig head you could easily do that with practical effects and it would have been fine you know maybe augment him with a bit of cgi to make him a bit bigger if you need to but it could have been fine but it wasn't but i'm sorry i've been chomping at the bit to talk about this since we press record there's a bit where we mentioned this uh, ben dymo is a cat. his character hates monsters and oh surprise he is one and there's a bit where he starts transforming and honestly his whole plot doesn't need to be there his character doesn't need to be there but what really doesn't need to be there are the big balls dangling down under his cgi bits <laughs> I don't know who was like, hmm, gotta make sure that Catman's got nards, but he sure do. That was something that I was blissfully unaware of until Jackson mentioned it after the film. He also got, like, the butt. His, um, swimsuit section is lovingly sculpted by someone who apparently was just super into Catman. There's gonna be some furry launched by this film, and I hope they find better films to watch. I think I'm done with Hellboy 2019. Really? Because I've got so much more. I keep going for a long time. Like, I've talked on like all the major issues that I have with the film. If you've got stuff, go for it. But I'm probably just going to bounce off of you. All right. And speedrun mode. There is a bit where Hellboy and Ian McShane are arguing about how Hellboy isn't really that much of a monster. And Hellboy's like, really? Because if my face could talk, it has something to say. <laughs> Which Your face can't talk, oh. Hellboy. <laughs> You have a mouth there. It's such a bad line. The film does get into a lot of stuff like Pendle Hill and the New Forest and other bits and stuff that are part of British folklore and British folk horror. And I really appreciate that and glad that it had tiny things that made me happy. It does love to name drop. Yeah. I'm not saying it uses them well, but, you know, Pendle Hill actually was the site of a variety of witch executions. And the New Forest is where Gerald Gardner and a bunch of other witches cast a curse on Hitler. It's very obvious that a lot of stuff was added in post, a lot of those being lines of dialogue. A surprising number of lines of dialogue happen just when a character's face is obscured or is seen from the back or whatnot. And once you notice it, 
you really start noticing how many things they've added to, I guess, change up the tone or the plot or the exposition or whatever. Honestly, that might also be due to the editing and the character actually got an actual shot of them talking and they're like, no, we're just going to cut it and paste it in where we can. Yeah, and it really doesn't work. (sighs) It's also really frustrating that the best shot fight scene in the film is at the very end of the movie. Oh, you mean that fucking sequel bait shit where they find Abe Sapien and then it cuts to black and they're like, wow, in the sequel, we'll definitely get into this. I do not want to see what these people do to Abe Sapien. I love Abe with my whole heart. Yeah. He deserves so much better. Honestly, if you want everything this movie is trying to do and also some Gilmore Totoro and some Abe Sapien, just watch The Shape of Water. It has its problems, but it's a better version of what this is trying to do. This feels less like a Hellboy film and more of a brutal legend film that is taking itself way too seriously. Or The Last Witch Hunter starring Vin Diesel, the movie you haven't thought about since it came out. So, let's talk about other better Hellboy properties. Where do you want to start? Well, it's usually most appropriate to start at the beginning. So, it all began in 1944. Classified mission off the coast of Scotland. I was thinking more along the lines of Seed of Destruction. Oh, yeah. So this is the Hellboy trade that the first Hellboy film from 2004 is loosely based on. It's also like the first proper Hellboy comic miniseries. Hellboy had a couple of appearances, one in a couple page spread that was released at Comic-Con, and then another that was in a trade magazine. So this is like the first proper introduction most people have to Hellboy. It came out in 1994. If you've seen the first Hellboy movie, it's similar enough to that. There's less subplots, but it's the same kind of thing. Hellboy is summoned, and then a bunch of people go off to fight Rasputin, who's trying to bring Eldritch Abomination into the world with dark magic. It's a bit more horror-ish. There's more of a, like, ruined castle and frogmen. A little less pulp action, but not the same kind of thing. Um, Tone-wise, it would be akin to something like the show Penny Dreadful. Yeah. Which is very different than the Del Toro films, but I dig both of them for different reasons. I honestly don't think it's all that different. They're both indulgently pulpy, but with slightly different parts of pulp. They're just kind of turning the dials a little bit differently. The films kind of turn up the snark and the action. The comics turn up the dark and brooding and like the mystery stuff. Mm-hmm. We've recommended comics and anti-recommended comics. I recommend reading this, but also get it in paperback. Look at these beautiful illustrations. Look at these wonderful black pages where the colors rise out of the black instead of the black being pasted on top of them. It's gorgeous to look at. Yeah. Mike Mignola's color work is always top-notch. It's one of his greatest qualities and I love the way it's captured in Del Toro's films and I was very disappointed with how it was kind of ignored in Hellboy 2019. The kind of moment that sold me on the Hellboy character from the comics is a bit where he's fighting a frog monster thing and he says it was the worst pain I've ever felt and I've been hurt by experts. It's a great line it's a great introductory character bit. It actually kind of leads me into one of the points that I wanted to make Hellboy's personality here is very different than where it is in either of Del Toro's films. Hellboy here is honestly much more mature. He also is has a little bit more distance between himself and Professor Broom. He is like a father to him, and he is very close. And Broom also dies in kind of one of the very first scenes of the comic. His role in the comic is to say, Oh, Hellboy, I have seen the horror, the horror, and then die. 
And also to give us an impetus for the flashback sequence of Hellboy's summoning. With the Torch of Liberty, who's really yeah. cool, I like him. So like, that's different, but it's still the same Hellboy. He's still full of snarky one-liners. He just looks at these eldritch abominations and is just like, ah, oh, crap, I've got to deal with this. He's a bit more weary, but weary not so much in an exasperated way, but in a long-suffering way. In a very noir way. He feels yes. very much like a noir detective. Mm. Like a noir detective with a big fist. I also a really great bit where Hellboy realizes he needs to get a second wind, but he can't. So he just tricks Rasputin into monologuing for four pages. And there's a bit where Hellboy's like, as the wizard droned on and on, I figured out what I was going to do. <laughs> Bless. Also during that scene, uh, Rasputin casts a spell of immobilization or whatever, but it doesn't have a word. It just has has a speech bubble with an arcane sigil in it. That's a really good way to express the idea of casting a spell without having to like put in... Ashnak Grashtagard or whatever. I have no idea how to read that, mm-hmm. but you get exactly what it's trying to say. Mm-hmm. It helps that the colors and the faces are a beautiful counterpoint to them. The other thing I really like about this is it does a much better job of using the other characters of Liz and Abe than mm-hmm. the film does. I think one of the detriments to the Del Toro films is... Towards the climax, there's not really a whole lot for Liz and Abe and in the sequel, Johan, to really do most of the time. They can't do a whole lot of heavy lifting and there aren't smaller threats that they can engage with. Whereas here in Seed of Destruction, Liz kind of gets kidnapped and is incapacitated for a chunk of it. But ultimately, a combination of her and Abe, who is possessed by a ghost, who saves the day. Mm Mm-hmm. And then Hellboy finished the job. When Rasputin comes back from the dead, Hellboy like crushes his skull to make sure he stays dead this time. But yeah. So it very much feels like a team effort and not like Hellboy and a bunch of cheerleaders. Right. And while I do like it a lot in a lot of ways, and I think it builds atmosphere and tone very well, it is also a bit more blatantly homaging a very problematic founder of cosmic horror in ways that have more cultural squickiness than the movie does. And I'm glad that Del Toro managed to sort of gently scoot those out of the plot. Yeah, um, unfortunately, there's a little bit too much fondness for Lovecraft here. Mm -hmm. Like the Mayan texts of northern Maine worshipping the Agdur Jihad and other little stuff like that. It's not enough to ruin it for me, but it is enough to make me go, hmm. Yeah. We also have to, grain of salt, this was written in 1994. It's over 20 years old. Right. A lot of other Hellboy stuff tends to go more for mythology than... And folk stuff. Yeah. There's still kind of this twinge of that existential cosmic horror. Right. But less of it gets into that particular... Mythology. Yeah. And admittedly, this partially comes from a aesthetic perspective, too. I don't really care that much for the, like, screwly tentacle horror things. I'm way more into the devil classic. I want my devils big and colorful and with horns and ideally with something glowing somewhere. The devils from Aramantari are my favorite devils ever. And you know what I'm talking about? Go watch it. It's on Netflix. I mean, I really like the tentacly stuff. We'll, we'll get into it when we talk about the film, but the use of tentacles is great there's just something so alien about that appendage and the film uses it so so well and so does the comic just to a slightly lesser extent that's true and speaking of the tentacles in the film let's talk about hellboy 2004 
right off the bat, we're getting Hellboy's origin story, getting summoned by Nazis on this island in Scotland, and the whole opening scene's very desaturated, and it's making excellent use of these blue hues and colors. We've already talked before how Del Toro does a really great job with bringing that bold color of the comics to film. But here it's also doing something else. There's a number of scenes throughout the film where the environment is just very, very blue with the exception of Hellboy, who is always this red spot and he doesn't fit. And it's really good shorthand for this personality quirk that he has. He never fits in. It reminds me of poorly done CGI where you can tell that it's CGI because it looks too plastic or the colors are wrong or the lighting is wrong. But he's a practical effect on a person walking around the world and it works really well. Mm-hmm. And while there's definitely a stylization to him, because you've got him and also Ape Sapien and also the monster and other things, it's more like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles where that's just the style of the film as opposed to feeling like a few bad effects in an otherwise fine film. There's other subtle ways in which they show just how Hellboy doesn't fit in. Samael, the Hound of Resurrection, has the same sort of spiral markings that Hellboy does. Yeah. Which is great to just show you how connected they are especially during that museum fight scene which you need because again hellboy's got this devil classic thing and samuel is more in that elder horror vein Mm -hmm. yeah but those spirals are a really simple addition that create a connection just boom done Mm -hmm. this runs all the way through everything we're talking about but we got a lot of really fun stuff in this movie that's kind of that like off-screen pulpy goodness like i was 28 already a paranormal advisor to president roosevelt and Samuel has been sealed in this jar containing salt gathered from the tears of a thousand angels. Like, I love that kind of shit. That's exactly my kind of thing. Mm. There's also just some really good dialogue. There's this one line. And the last clue will be left by the late Professor Broom. As Rasputin is specifically talking to him right before he kills Professor Broom. Broom's reaction to that is also incredibly interesting because he's not fearful of death. He's old, he's aged, but even though Rasputin is threatening to turn Hellboy against all of humanity, Broom's not frightened at all. He embraces the death because he knows that he's raised a good man. And also in that scene is a really heart-wrenching moment from Broom where Rasputin is offering to tell Broom a Hellboy's true name. He disclosed to me the child's true name. Would you like to know it? I know what to call him. I call him son. My heart, it break into a million pieces. Yeah, it's things like that that really highlight how much the Ian McShane portrayal just doesn't work. Broom is perfectly cast as played by John Hurt, the Slash Dragon. He's mature, he's quiet, he's gentle. There's an element of sharpness to him. He's he's like, like a mother superior's knuckles. One thing I will say is that I think the final act of the film is probably its weakest. Yeah. Part of it is that we don't get a really good lead-in. There's the fight in the museum, they go to investigate the sewers, and there's the fight down there as well that lose a lot of agents and Abe is incapacitated there as well. Mm-hmm. And then we go into the third act and Abe is down and can't go with us and Broom is gone as well. No one's quite sure what to do for a little while. Also, the climax has Hellboy being about to release the demon god thing to save his girlfriend and then deciding not to because he 
acknowledges the world is more important than what he wants, which is a really good character growth moment. But then I'm like, hmm, that's not enough of an action climax. We gotta do something. So Rasputin, when he dies, turns into a monster and they kill it with some explosions. And it feels kind of weak. It feels like something from the Atlantis Lost Empire sequel as opposed to like something all that satisfying. I think we already had a good enough ending here. It's interesting that you mentioned the Atlantis the Lost Empire sequel because the guy who worked on that also worked on the Hellboy animated films. Wow, that... That does not surprise me at all. We'll get into that in a little bit, though. Yeah. Like I said, Hellboy's trying to rescue his girlfriend by releasing the demon gods who have her soul imprisoned or whatever. Not super well explained. And I'm not here for Liz getting fridged. Her whole film is her trying to find agency, and it doesn't work for her arc. Yeah. She is so much better in the second film when she has that and is like much more proactive. I love her. The one where she just glares at the angel of death until it brings Hellboy back to life? Honestly, I think my biggest problem with Hellboy 2004, though, is really the character of John Meyer. Mm, yeah, I forgot he was in it. I understand that he's mostly a plot device. Oh, he's the new guy that everything needs to be explained to so the audience understands what's going on. But there's this unfounded tension that Myers has between the bureaucracy and all these misfits between Hellboy and Liz and Abe and trying to find that middle ground and it just really rings hollow because there's nothing that's a misfit about him mm-hmm. and it kind of feels like white saviory to have this guy trying to better all of this for these misfits who for whatever reason can't advocate for themselves. Mm -hmm. There might have been ways to make him have the same role but still be a misfit in some way, have him be a person of color, have him be a queer, but that gets into other complicated problems of portraying queers and people of color as monstrous, and you have to have the right writing, it would add more to the plot of an already pretty packed film. Yeah. However, it does give us a great scene where Hellboy stalks John and Liz, who are on a sort of date, and is trying to convince a kid he runs into that they're secret spies, and he's trying to make sure they're not up to nefarious things, and the kid is just seeing through all his bullshit and just critiquing him, and this kid's like six, and it's great. Like, at one point, it's like, You just go there and tell her how you feel. It's not that easy, okay? Plus, you're nine. You're not old enough to be giving me advice. It's so on brand for Hellboy to not have the emotional maturity of this adolescent boy. Mm -hmm. Ron Perlman, who's what, probably about 40 when this movie was made? He was in his 50s. Yeah, despite being in his 50s, Ron Perlman manages to make this guy act like a late teen, early 20s character. And I think it's really good for giving us the sense of, of a character who is probably functionally immortal or at least close enough as makes no odds, but is maturing far slower than any human would because the character is probably around 60 or 70 at this point but the actor is a man in his 50s acting like a man in his 20s and it's really good and gives you this really good sense of a time sink Mm -hmm. it also brings us to i think one of the more interesting deeper looks this man-child protagonist who has all this power and we can take a look at hellboy and what he's like in all of the films and we can also take a look at peter quill from the mcu and see how cinema is changing exactly how they're portraying that individual. Right. There's a lot of similarities. Yeah. I could talk about this movie for a very long time. I think there's a lot to unpack there, and we're barely scratching the surface. So as we move on, I don't want it to be because we're out of things to say. Just, there's only so much time in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't even gotten into how I feel like the movie's a little bit timid about being pulpy. And that's something I'd love to unpack more. But we have more things to unpack, like the two animated features. So we have Hellboy, Sword of Storms from 2006, 
and Hellboy Blood and Iron from 2007. These are not necessarily co-universal with either of the Del Toro films, although Del Toro was a producer on both of them, and they also have much of the same cast. Perlman voices Hellboy, Doug Jones, who did all of the physical acting for Ape Sapien in the first film, does the voice for both of these films, as well as doing the voice in Hellboy 2 The Golden Army. Doug Jones, who is a Ball State graduate. Yep, so... We both have a bit of a soft spot for him since he is from our alma mater. Oh, I have a soft spot for him for a very long time. He's so good in Hocus Pocus. No one ever talks about it. Also, that one episode of Buffy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then we also have Summer Blair reprising her role as Liz for both of these films as well. Mm-hmm. For a really quick rundown, because we're all going to talk about them both kind of intermittently, Sword of Storms, there's a magic katana that has... The demons, thunder and lightning trapped within it. Yeah. Hellboy gets trapped into a mindscape thing trying to stop them from getting out. They get out and then they fight. Said storm demons are trying to awaken seven dragons throughout the world who will cause the apocalypse. So that's another thing that's going on. Yeah. Meanwhile, Blood and Iron is basically Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island by way of Dracula. We're dealing with Elizabeth Bathory, who is distinctly a vampire in this. And people are trying to bring her back, and they're in a spooky yeah. castle and trying to stop her. She is also a priestess of Hecate, and towards the climax of the film, she gets involved. Sword of Storms, I think, is fine, but is honestly just kind of like a long episode of Samurai Jack. Yeah, pacing for Sword of Storms is pretty bad, and it kind of suffers a lot of the same things with, like, Abe and Liz don't really have a whole lot to do. It's fine. It's not bad. But it's definitely a, we're still trying to figure it all of this out. Blood and Iron is where everything comes together in just the right ways. Mm-hmm. We find out that Professor Broom was functionally Professor Van Helsing for this Bathory vampire. And there's this really cool thing where the flashbacks to the group that would go on to fight the Bathory vampire are happening reverse chronologically. So we're getting further and further away from their fights as the main narrative is getting closer and closer to the fight with the resurrected Elizabeth Bathory vampire and Hecate. Mm -hmm. And it's cool and trippy and reminds me a lot of Shiki in weird ways. It also does a really great job because of that reverse chronological order. It feels like we're learning all of this along with the characters who are doing the research, trying to figure out exactly what happened back then and what's going on now. And it just feels so natural to have those flashbacks be in that direction. The cartoons also expand the BPRD a little bit. We get Katie Corrigan, who's this kind of nerdy academic about the supernatural, who keeps talking about all the papers she's presenting and all the research she wants to do. Gosh, Kate, I feel just terrible luring you away from your exciting career of combing through rotting manuscripts. I mean, you used to research trolls. That's okay. Now I get to work with one. Who's a lot of fun. Serves as another woman in this narrative, which, dear God, there needs to be more women in these narratives. And she's just kind of a really fun counterpoint to Liz, because Katie is full of energy and delight about the supernatural, where Liz is not. Mm-hmm. And then in Blood and Iron, we get Sidney Leach, whose superpower is he can detect metal. Can't move it, can't bend it, can't reshape it, can't change its nature. He can just tell if it's there. It's a lame-ass power, but he's kind of fun as a, like, grunt who spent one refresh on having a cool magic ability. I'm thinking maybe hidden doorway and uh yep (laughs) here it is and he's also their tech guy because they're investigating this haunted mansion and he even helps move the plot forward and has a pretty cool fight scene himself 
Yeah. The animated version reminds me a lot of, I mentioned Samurai Jack. You mentioned that it's some of the same person who did the attempted Atlantis Lost Empire spinoff mm-hmm. TV show. Yeah, Tad Stone. Yeah. It also reminds me a lot of the cartoon version of The Mummy, which I love and no one else has seen, but I love. Oh, uh, I've seen it. Oh, really? Cool. Yes. Yeah, good. I saw a few episodes of it. It's in that really kind of fun, pulpy vein that <clears throat> from this era that had a lot of just fun with this medium. Mm-hmm. And the animation's pretty good. Not always, like, stellar, but yeah. it's, it's, all right. yeah. it's fine. It also does some, like, really interesting things. So throughout the film, they're in this mansion where Erzabet has killed all of these people and mostly young women and for the most part it we're just getting these ghostly skeletons with clothing on top of them Mm -hmm. kind of floating throughout the mansion and then when she's finally defeated that's when their full forms come back and we see their faces and just this really great metaphor for these victims gaining humanity and identity through justice Mm mm-hmm in order for the aristocracy to exist, there must be sacrifices, and this film makes that incredibly literal. And by repersoning the ghost of the end, it drives that home in a really effective way that doesn't require any characters to, t- to turn to the camera and say, and that's why feudalism is bad. Ironically, feudalism being bad was also the main point of Sword of Storms. Yeah. Don't kill your daughter just to maintain your honor. Use your head. You just have to forgive them or else we'll end up doing this all over again. And you're never going to win. Right. But I think it wasn't as effective. No, definitely not. Speaking of not as effective, while I do love Blood and Iron, there's this whole thing where Hecate is trying to convince Hellboy to join the side of the monsters because that's all anybody does in these movies. And Hellboy's like, no, no, fuck no. They fight, and that fight kind of overshadows the fight with Elizabeth Bathory. And it's... Yeah. eh. That fight with Hecate is definitely too long, and I wish we spent less time with that subplot. I'm also just kind of broadly not a fan of things where you make a god into a sort of lesser demon type of thing. I don't think it works super well. Apart from that, still pretty good. We mentioned that Liz is a little bit different in these animated versions. They changed her power from being kind of like some sort of X-Man to being a little bit more mystical. Her fire doesn't always come directly from her body. She can kind of make fire happen in or on other people, which is just enough of a shift to make her a bit more like she is in the comics where her fire is a living thing. And I think it's a really subtle shift that's only done through action, not through conversation. It helps a lot. I think with that... I'm ready to talk about Hellboy to the Golden Army. Yeah. Real quick, I do want to give some context to what's going on with Hellboy. It's in a very interesting place time-wise in regards to comic and superhero films. And I just want to give a list of all the other superhero slash comic book films that came out in 2008. March 28th, we have Superhero Movie. (laughs) The parody film from like writers or producers of Scary Movie. Iron Man comes out May 2nd, the beginning of the MCU. Speed Racer is May 9th. (laughs) The Incredible Hulk is June 13th. A film we've already talked about, Wanted, June 27th. Hancock comes out July 2nd. Then a little over a week later, Hellboy 2 The Golden Army comes out on July 11th. The Dark Knight comes out a week later, July 18th. Between Will Smith and one of the most anticipated movies of the year, I understand why Hellboy 2 did not do amazingly well. Right. Then we have Bolt, another film we've talked about, came out November 21st. Punisher Warzone, December 5th. Is that the good one or the bad one? That's not the Thomas Jane one. Okay. And then The Spirit came out December 25th of that year. It's years like this that I can understand people feeling superhero fatigue. 
I don't think we've gotten that many fewer superhero films. It's just that now they're much better and much less variety. Most of the superhero and comic films we're getting are either MCU films or whatever the fuck DC is doing. And while the horrible monopolies that are happening with films right now are very bad... It also means that a lot of the films tend to have higher quality, and that's a devil's bargain, but here we are. 2008 was definitely a time when movies were trying to figure out what they wanted to do with superheroes, and that debate raged for a while. Yeah. And I'm sad there aren't more things like Hellboy the Golden Army, which I think is my favorite of the five movies we're talking about this time around. I would agree. Mm -hmm. I love Blood and Iron, but it is a afternoon tea movie as opposed to like a main feature. Yeah, it's also incredibly short. It's only like... A little over 70 minutes. Yeah. Whereas Hellboy the Golden Army is nice full length. Mm -hmm. And in this movie, an exiled elvish prince is trying to gather the three artifacts that will allow him to control an evil mechanical army and take over the world. To get back at the humans who banished he and the rest of his people to the outskirts of the forests and society. So we're getting into Celtic mythology, fairy mythology, fairy tales as a kind of a general thing. Like it Mm -hmm. starts with Professor Broom reading a fairy tale to Hellboy. This is also one of the very few pieces of Hellboy media outside the comics that are not, in fact, based on any of the stories in the comics. This was completely original from Del Toro and Mignola working together. Mm -hmm. And what a team up. While this film is structurally not all that dissimilar to Hellboy, the fact that it's established and doesn't feel a need to introduce us to the world gently means we have a lot more fun. We dive in head first. Liz gets to be more of a character. Liz is way more active. She's a full BPRD agent. In our first scene, we see she is on fire arguing with Hellboy about what a dump his room is. Mm-hmm. Red, I can't live like this. Ah, uh, they are way better as a couple than as exes. But speaking of introductory scenes, this gives me one of my favorite introductory scenes in cinema on the whole. We meet Prince Nuada, who is the exiled Elvish prince, and he's having what appears to be a standard martial practice where he's using his weapons to do fancy tricks, including slapping a puddle and then slicing one of the drops of water in half perfectly with his spear. It's so cool and so over the top, and I love it. Then, as the water falls, a subway car... behind him and you realize that he's living in a hole in the subway and it's such a great way of establishing how powerful and regal and skilled and graceful this character is living in this urbanality i like that urban plus banality yeah it's one of the favorite words i've ever made i really love the design of the elves for this film they tread this fine line between this elven beauty that most people are associated with elves and the monstrousness that hellboy and del toro are known for they're incredibly pale and not in like a beautifully pale way they're like sickly pale like something living in a cave yeah and their eyes are this sort of sickly yellow they kind of look a little jaundiced Mm -hmm. and it's strikes such a perfect balance there's this beautiful combination of, I guess what you think of as traditional elvish weapons and clothing and trappings with urban grunge. Like the High King's Court is an abandoned factory with all these steam pipes and stuff just around, but also with fall leaves falling in from somewhere. It's so cool and it's such a good way to visually express this idea of the elves having to put up with the modern world and not uh, having their own space. The design feeds so well into the emotional beats of the film and these themes of colonialism and environmentalism. 
it allows Nuwata to be an antagonist, but one that the audience can see has a point. He is relatable. He is this very tragic character. Reminds me a lot of Killmonger. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And you really need a Killmonger type antagonist in a Hellboy film. Or well, either I will awaken the Al-Gujahad with my science magic type antagonist from the first film, or this why do you fight for them? You should you should join me, the hate and fear you antagonist from this film. I think one of the reasons that Hellboy 2019 failed is because it tried to do both with one character. Right. It doesn't work. And Nuada is fairly convincing. Like It's clear from Luke Goss's acting that he's not just putting it on to put Hellboy off his game. He genuinely thinks of Hellboy as a fantasy creature who ought to be on his side in this war and is baffled that he chooses humans over monster kind. It's also really impressive because he is also doing, for the most part, all of his own stunts. He's an incredibly skilled martial arts expert. Oh, cool. Yeah, he, he's even worked with Del Toro before in Blade 2. Mm, that tracks. It also gives us this incredibly sad scene where he's released this giant forest elemental onto New York. He's standing above Hellboy saying, Look at it. The last of its kind. You destroy it, the world will never see its light again. And then Hellboy does to protect mankind and the creature dies and everywhere his blood touches, plants grow like it's a Ghibli film. And we have this two or three minute sequence of everybody in New York on the BPRD just walking around the ruins of this beautiful creature that is turning all of new york green like it's the end of troll in central park those two very different <laughs> references i made and it's beautiful and heartbreaking and sad and tragic and i love it yeah i love it, it so much it's really impressive when a film allows your protagonist to win a fight without much consequence like no one on his side died but it's still tragic that the fight turned out the way it did it's some incredibly impressive storytelling and it's very clear that this has emotionally affected all these characters, despite not actually being much of a strategic loss, and that feeds into their characters in a really good way, in the way that the losses in the first film don't quite have the same effect. It's that thing from Black Panther, where they're like, yeah, Kellinger has a point. He's going about it in a way we don't approve of, but we agree with what he's saying, and he will change us in ways that will have very profound effects on us. Yeah. That scene there plants the seed there for the four of them leaving the BPRD at the end of the film, like, no, we we don't want to do this anymore. The direction that you're forcing us to go in is not right. It is unethical, and we're going to find our own way. I quit. Are you serious? Looks that way, doesn't it? What's wrong with you? You can't all just quit. Watch us. I love it so much. One thing I really, really love about Hellboy 2 is it gives Abe much more screen time and allows him to be much more of a character and abe gets this really interesting love interest in nuala nuada's sister they're twins and they're connected so they have this mind link and also whatever physical harm comes to one it also comes to the other and the eventual defeat is just her stabbing herself i am not sure how i feel about that but i really do love this love story between abe and nuala because it leads to one of my, no, it leads to my favorite scene in the film where it's Hellboy and Abe getting drunk over their issues with relationships. You're in love. Have a beer. And them karaokeing can't smile without you to the entire BPRD compound. It's so good. 
It also ends up making it so that Hellboy is drunk when he first fights Nawada, which allowed you an easy out. It's like, well, that's why Nawada won this time. He was drunk. That's why Hellboy is able to beat him later on. It's, the film slows down a lot. The characters have these emotional moments and these growth and doesn't feel the need to fill it all up with action beats or comedy and that's really good and it has this maturity to it where it trusts that the audience is connecting up to these weird characters to let them have this very human moment yeah this is the breathing room that i was looking for in hellboy 2019 and then never really got a thing i love from this mm-hmm. film is we get a goblin market sequence i love goblin market as a thing just as a trope as a device it's really fun yeah. just here it's called the troll market but if you're familiar with like folklore literature it, it's totally a goblin market tornado tornado and this is Gamoto toro's props and set designers and prosthetics actors just going ham he's like here here's a bunch of money make a troll market and they're like my time has come it's so good everything about it just feels so evocative of this bizarre of the bizarre Mm -hmm. you can just tell that they were having so much fun designing for it if you free stream through it you get the sense that everything here could be its own story or could have its own plot or whatnot and it's really cool to see and a lot of it's practical and that's really cool and we need more practical effects and things Mm. A thing that I'm not sure how I feel about with this film, it was kind of a bit in the first film where Hellboy really wanted to be like a public figure. He wanted to, people to know he existed. Mm-hmm. And where here he arranges things so that he accidentally gets out into the world in front of a bunch of news vans and stuff. I 100% support a character wanting to be out about who they are to the world. That is totally fine. That is a great thing. And I think it's a really cool thing for this movie to explore. It's different in this movie because he's not just outing himself as existing. He's outing the supernatural world, which means he's potentially putting every supernatural being in danger. And that's not his call to make on his own. And I wish that the film had devoted a little more time to unpacking the way that Hellboy took it on himself to announce to the world that, yes, supernatural things exist. You would have to devote a whole movie to that. That would have to be its own thing. There wasn't really room for it. Yeah. But I think that would be a thing that could have been changed in some way, or I would have been willing to, say, sacrifice Ghost in Spacesuit Man for exploring the pros and cons of Hellboy coming out. Fun fact, did you know that Johan was voiced by Seth MacFarlane? Johan Klaus, at your service. Say what now? Yeah, Family Guy guy. Huh, I did not know that. Huh. We haven't really talked about him, but there's a very charming, genial man in a rubber suit who has been turned into ectoplasm by a thing gone wrong. They specifically don't give his backstory. There's a point where Abe, Liz, and Hellboy are trying to commandeer a plane to go after Nawada because Hellboy is dying and Liz is trying to save him. And Johan is like, A long time ago, I lost the woman I loved. And that was, in fact, the source of my present misfortune. I will tell you about it one day. But for now, the tactical advantage is ours. (laughs) (laughs) And I just love how fucking practical that is. Yeah, he's a very good boy. Also, like that now they have all four elements because uh, Hellboy for Earth, him for air, Liz for fire, and Abe for water. It's very true. Yeah. Nice balanced team. Mm Mm-hmm. The Golden Army has some troubles here and there. I think the Golden Army and the Crown are a bit MacGuffin-y, and there might have been another way to have the same kind of thing happening, but in a less mcguffin way. But, eh, whatever. Pulp movie. Yeah, and I've already talked about it. It kind of fails, and the fact that Liz and Abe don't really have much to do in the climax, and they kind of just get sidelined for Hellboy 
action sequence. Right. But again, when Hellboy is injured, Liz glares at the Angel of Death until it brings Hellboy back. So yeah. I also really love that layered voice effect that oh, it's so cool. allows the Angel of Death to be very, very androgynous. Mm-hmm. I've been waiting for you In the script was written as a she, but the physical actor portraying it was also Doug Jones. I, I figured. I hadn't checked that, but I'm like, that yeah. seems like Doug Jones. Yeah. Doug Jones does Ape Sapien. He also does the Angel of Death. He's also the Chamberlain at the very beginning of the film. Oh, nice. That sort of weird prosthetic acting is Doug Jones' bread and butter. Mm-hmm. If you want to get into Hellboy, The Golden Army is a great place to start. I think it will give you kind of a sense of what Hellboy can be, and then you can branch out into whatever floats your boat. The mission statement for Hellboy is, There are things that go bump in the night, and we are the ones who bump back. And once you've gotten into it, you can kind of pick anything that sounds like your cup of tea and get into that. Like, I'm not super into the Elder's Horror stuff, so the Sea of Destruction isn't really my thing, but there are a bunch that are more into, like, British folklore and folk horror, and I'm like, yeah, that's my shit. And I'm going to read a bunch of those. If you're super into, say, uh, Japanese mythology, you could go with Sword of Storms. Mm -hmm. If you're super into regretting your life choices, there's Hellboy 2019. (sighs) I think we did a pretty good job of covering quite a large chunk of the Hellboy oeuvre. And honestly, it's just fun to talk about. I love these films and I really love these characters. And it was, I just really enjoyed talking all about all of this. Yeah, same. I either hadn't seen some of these movies or hadn't seen them in a while. And it was really nice to get back into them because I'd forgotten how much fun they can be and how great pulp can be when when you just let it be pulp. Mm -hmm. Speaking of pulpy things, we are kind of diving into that horror pulp Ness again in our next episode where we're going to be talking about the Adams Family and the Adams Family Values films. So we hope you join us next week. We'll get into those as both an act of love and an act of apology for snubbing them from this bracket. Yes. Because whoever made it failed miserably. <laughs> that person was me and you, so we hold <laughs> ourselves to blame. If you want to make sure to catch that episode as soon as it goes live, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Podbean, and Spotify. But until then, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.